0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices
1: are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the State of the Union, Trump's new judges, and we'll interview Carrie Severino from the Judicial Crisis Network. So Tiffany, did you watch the State of the Union? Because I I didn't. (laughs) I did. Um, And Trump briefly talked about judges. Let's hear what he had to say. Yeah. So he said he is working with the Senate to appoint judges who will interpret the Constitution as written. And while he only spent about two sentences talking about it, his success in this area really can't be understated. To date, the Senate has confirmed 13 courts of appeals judges, more than any president in U.S. history in the first year. Um, and he also specifically highlighted the Second Amendment and protecting religious freedom, which I thought was nice.
0: So four of the justices uh, were in attendance, Chief mm-hmm. Justice John Roberts and Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Neil Gorsuch. Uh,
1: this was Gorsuch's first um, State of the Union. <laughs> and bless his heart, he was hilarious because he tried so hard to remain expressionless, um, <laughs> that he, but he kind of looked angry because, um, you know, the president acknowledged him and his appointment this year but it was really funny i can just picture him like practicing with his wife like i can't show any emotion (laughs) but it's going to be it's like very memeable it's going to be a great gif
0: Uh, so stephen breyer i read that he has perfect attendance at the state of the union um, he's, uh, in fact, he was the only justice in attendance from 2001 to 2005. Um, at that time, he was the junior justice. So I wonder if the the rest of the court uh, delegated to him that responsibility. It was part of the hazing. <laughs> yeah, another undesirable task in addition to being <laughs> in charge of the cafeteria committee and having to open the door during conference. Uh, so Kevin Daly of The Daily Caller had a nice article about the justices attending the State of the Union in the past. And he reported that uh, back in... In 2001, there were scattered boos greeting uh, Justice Breyer's entrance to the House chamber. And this was just months after the court had handed down Bush versus Gore. So I feel That's kind, so of, sad. Yeah, kind of bad for Justice Breyer uh, that, that he was getting booed. And also you can see why the rest of the justices decided not to attend that year. <laughs> yeah, I
1: think we should all just agree not to boo the justices at the State of the Union, yeah. even— when we disagree with them.
0: Uh, So Justice Ginsburg is out of town making a series of speeches, so she was not in attendance, and she has actually never attended a Republican president's State of the Union address. Interesting. But I remember during President Obama's, uh, one of his State of the Union addresses, she nodded off during the address, and I remember reading after the fact that she said the justices typically have dinner together before the event, um, and she blamed Justice Kennedy for having served too much wine.
1: (laughs) It's like... the best excuse
0: <laughs> justice kennedy anthony kennedy got, me, got drunk. me drunk yeah <laughs> well since he's from california i hope that he has good taste yeah, in wine i bet he has good selection yeah so justice alito stopped attending um, after he made headlines at the 2010 state of the union this was when president obama criticized the court's decision as citizens united versus fec which the court had decided the week before and alito mouthed not true and so he has not attended since then uh, and chief justice roberts has Talked about. He's questioned, you know, whether the justices really should be there or not. And and he he once said that to the extent that the State of the Union has degenerated into a political pep rally, I'm not sure
1: why we're there. And I I have to agree. Yeah, you know, for a while the State of the Union was just a written kind of a written report given to Congress. And you know, who brought it back. My <laughs> least favorite president, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. He. <laughs> so you know, I I'm I'm not. I think there's valid reasons like maybe to go back to that. Uh, tradition, but mostly because Woodrow Wilson thought it was a. Um, I would be perfectly fine a with a written State of the Union address. <laughs> Sounds great to me. Yeah.
0: Uh, so moving on to SCOTUS news, the court is out of session until mid-February, so some of the justices are out on the road giving speeches. Tiffany uh, Sotomayor is down in Texas. Tell us what she's doing down there.
1: Yeah, so late last week, Justice Sotomayor spoke at the University of Houston Law Center, and she spent a lot of time um, in a and session. With the students, and one interesting thing she talked about was criminal defense attorneys arguing at the Supreme Court um, for the first time. She said uh, since they don't they don't often do as well as traditional Supreme Court practitioners, which which kind of makes sense as first timers. Um, she said there's a, when there's a new advocate, sometimes she passes a note to one of the other justices saying I want to kill them <laughs> um, because they can make like really basic mistakes. Not everyone is Paul Clement, yes, but there there's a lot I think. There's 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 a lot to this. So on one hand, new people should be able to break into the Supreme Court bar. um, And I'm sure it would be difficult to give up your case, especially if you've worked on it since its inception. Um, But on the other hand, oral argument is at another level at the Supreme Court. And you want someone with, like, really great capabilities up there. I mean, a lot's at stake. Um, So I think there's probably, you know, some middle ground and, and these people could practice more and do more you know, moot courts. But mm-hmm. um, it's interesting when justices observe some of these things during oral argument. She also talked about setting her personal views aside um, when deciding cases, saying that, quote, the fact that I'm sympathetic does not mean the law is, um, <laughs> which was kind of interesting. I hope she views it this way, but I'm a little bit skeptical. Yeah, you know, after reading her, reading her jurisprudence,
0: color me skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And then finally, she talked a little bit about women in the law and says she hopes we get to a point where a U.S. Marshal at a courthouse will think twice before calling her honey. I say, <laughs> I have to agree with this. I hate being called honey in professional settings. Thankfully, that does not happen here at Heritage. I've never been called that here, but out out and about in the world. But mm-hmm. it also like is just silly when someone calls me that. I've never been accused of, of being sweet. So, um. Certainly not. <laughs> so I'm on board with, with Justice Sotomayor in this. But finally, I i saw in the summaries of her talk that the houston law center invited her three years ago like i didn't know it was i figured you could you know book a justice a year out (laughs) so
0: like booking them for a party like a disney princess
1: yeah exactly (laughs) book neil gorsuch for your next kid's birthday you should for your your son's next birthday party um (laughs) and then he can wear his gorsuch t-shirt that i bought him yeah um (laughs) And yeah, I just thought that was that was really interesting. Three years.
0: So in other news, Mark Sherman and Jessica Grasco of the Associated Press wrote an article this week about how the notorious RBG has no plans to retire. Uh, This year marks Ginsburg's 25th anniversary on the Supreme Court, but she has long said that she'll stay on as long as she can go full steam. She used to point to Justice Louis Brandeis as her model, uh, but he retired at age 83, and she is now 84. So now she started uh, pointing to her former colleague john paul stevens who remained on the court until he was 90 in any event she's hired clerks through 2020 and she keeps uh, her schedule packed with public appearances and speaking engagements uh, and she's also keeping busy with her work at the supreme court she has written two of the four majority opinions that the court has
1: released so far this term so she is here to stay uh, for the foreseeable future yeah do you think she um She hired so far in advance just to, like, make this point (laughs) to conservatives that she's really not going anywhere. She means it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So now on to our favorite topic, judges. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick a few weeks ago had an article in Slate called Don't Fear the Clowns. And um, I thought this article was really interesting. She warns her readers to basically move on from talking about The three district court nominees who were withdrawn, particularly FEC Commissioner Matthew Peterson, who really struggled to answer questions at his confirmation hearing, and then who the left mocked relentlessly. Uh, but she said it's a mistake to focus on this and to pay little attention to the smart, well-qualified judges who are actually poised to reshape the judiciary. She talked about how these new new judges were, you know, dangerous. The danger will come from the likes of Amul Thapar, Joan Larson, Alice Nye, Don Willett, James Ho, and Amy Coney Barrett.
0: Okay, can I just say for a second (laughs) saying that Allison Ide is dangerous I mean she looks like a kindergarten teacher and sounds like one she just seems like she's probably one of the nicest women on the planet and so calling her a a danger that's lurking on the federal judiciary
1: is just pretty entertaining it It is entertaining and she goes on to, you know, uh, talk about how all these judges are a threat to, you know, the left's line of causes like women's rights, voting rights, the environment. But she's, she says these nominees are not jokes. They're highly effective and respected um, thinkers. And they're going to do these things capably um, or work against these issues capably and under the radar. And she says, we giggle at the Trump judges at our own peril.
0: Lithwick also brought up the fact that the American Bar Association rates judicial nominees and that they had rated four of Trump's nominees not qualified. And I think this is an, you know, an interesting point for her to bring up. Uh, the ABA's process of rating is unfortunately highly partisan and ideologically tinged. And in fact, the head of the ABA was asked to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee last fall. Uh, we wrote an article about this, and we'll tweet it from the SCOTUS 101 account on Twitter. But, you know, we talked about the problems with the ABA's rating process. But anyway, she brings that up again as, as a, a
1: sort of a, a knock against the, the Trump nominees when it really isn't. But I like the the very dramatic ending to this article, She says, these are the jurists to watch and also the jurists to fear. Um, And with that, I think that transitions into talking more about judges with Carrie Severino. We're pleased to have
0: Carrie Severino with us today. She's the chief counsel and policy director of Judicial Crisis Network. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Carrie.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So you follow judicial nominations very closely, and the past year has been a big one, particularly for the Courts of Appeals. David Strauss was confirmed earlier this week, bringing President Trump's total to 13 Court of Appeals judges. Can you put this into perspective for us, looking at other presidents' records on judges?
2: Yeah, President Trump has been exceptional in terms of prioritizing appellate nominees. And that, of course, is really significant because they have a—not a, the final word because it's the Supreme Court, but they, they are are there at a much higher level. However, if you look at the—so he's hit 12, which that's a record for his first year um, of any president ever for their first year of office. That's amazing. However, if you look at overall, you can see the real impact that the Democrats' efforts to slow down nominations have had. Because, uh, yes, he confirmed 12 of the 18 nominees he had for the appellate courts, but he only confirmed six of the 49 outstanding nominees there are for the district courts. That's really shocking. And I think that's where it's great that we were able to prioritize getting the good people through, but you can see the damage that's being done uh, just to moving nominees through by the opposition that's been put up by the Democrats.
1: Yeah. So let's talk more about the numbers. So there are more than 140 vacancies on the courts of appeals and the district courts. And there are 44 nominees for these vacancies and confirmation confirmations, you know, are moving pretty slowly. So can you talk specifically about why the Demo- Senate Democrats are able to gum up the process and what the Senate Republican leadership can do to get more
2: nominees confirmed? Well, there's a couple main techniques they've been trying to use. One, one is the blue slips, which allows home state senators kind of an extra say and, and, and buy in on nominees from their state. That's particularly strong in the case of district courts, which are all in one state versus the appellate courts, which cover a region of multiple states. And so the kind of the, the, the uh, privilege of, of giving them a little bit more say is, is take has less weight in that case. So they were trying with significantly with David Strauss, who just was confirmed. Senator Franken tried to say, well, I'm just not going to put to return my blue slip on this guy because I think he's going to be too much like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia not a good reason in my opinion and not a good reason in in (laughs) Chairman Grassley's opinion either so Grassley said look if this is simply a partisan effort to block people not a real serious let's have a back and forth with the president then I'm not going to uh, allow you to block a nomination altogether and I think that's something that is totally in keeping with the 100 year history of the blue slips from the vast majority of that time they haven't been a total block the second way they're gumming this up is by running out the clock on nominees, that by instead of agreeing to have a vote and move forward on people, they're requiring a cloture vote, which then triggers 30 hours of automatic debate time. And if you want an example of how ridiculous uh, these 30 hours can be, there are a couple recent nominees, Thomas Lee Robinson for the Western District of Tennessee, they filed cloture, required 24 hours of debate, so they gave a little bit on 30 <laughs> hours, uh, but it, the vote was 98 to zero. Nobody during that whole 24 hours, the Senate was blocked from doing other executive work. Were they allowed to talk about anything else? They didn't talk about him either. Nobody got up to say they have any actual debate. So we talk about debate time. There is no debate going on. They're just wasting time. Another one, William Campbell, same same deal, 97 to 0. They wasted 21 hours of the Senate's time on him with nobody standing up to, to express any opposition. That's really shameful. And when you count out 30 hours for all of these nominees, it would take the Senate a full month to confirm the outstanding nominees. Not a full month of actual work time, a full month working Twenty-four hours a day, <laughs> seven days a week. Anyone who knows the Senate knows they don't work that way. We <laughs> yeah. know no, human beings can't work that way. But the Senate in particular, they're, they're normally actually in session more like three days a week. So there's just no way to get these nominees confirmed at a pace that requires thirty hours apiece.
1: Mm-hmm. It seemed like when Mitch McConnell, you know, made told them that they were going to have to come in and work more than their three days a week, then they seem to to give a little on the 30 hours.
2: Uh, that's that's right. So so they do value their time home on the weekend, really four <laughs> four and a half to five day weekends that they often get. I would I would like that too. Yeah. Um, but so I, there are proposals out there. Senator Langford has a proposal to limit that time. Mm-hmm. So instead of automatic 30 hours, you get an automatic eight hours. As I said, eight hours is frankly more than you get most of these people. You've got people who are being required to spend a full 24 hour day of debate time. And no one has anything to say. So frankly, Mm -hmm. eight hours is generous. And I think that would be a great move to do that or simply to hold the Democrats feet to the fire and say, "Okay, do you want to do you want to go home for a long weekend or do you want to vote? And maybe (laughs) they would start uh, having different priorities.
0: So many of Trump's judicial nominees have been confirmed, particularly for the courts of appeals, have been confirmed by very narrow margins, although I was pleased to see that there were seven Democrats who voted for David Strauss earlier Mm -hmm. this week. So that's progress. Uh, But tell us how the Senate got to this point. You know, by Paris, Justice Ginsburg was confirmed 96 to three. Scalia was confirmed 98 to zero. So how have we gotten to this point where, you know, people uh, like uh, like David Strauss are, are just uh, scraping by with a few votes?
2: Well, I think you can, you can trace the beginning of this uh, hyper-partisan approach to judges to the Bork episode. Mm-hmm. And so I think before that, most judges even up to the supreme court people expected the president was going to get a lot of deference in who they appointed they, the the attacks on Bork came really kind of out of left field for a lot of people they were very surprised to see that especially cuz he was considered a safe pick because he was so widely respected so acknowledged to be a, a leading legal scholar they thought oh no problem he'll get confirmed he wasn't he was attacked on a, in a very unfair partisan basis an ideological basis the republicans i th- they think maybe took them a few more rounds to realize the democrats are serious because as you said, mm-hmm. they, they did confirm overwhelmingly uh, Justice Ginsburg, who was not a neutral person going in. She'd worked for the ACLU. She was a, a, a leader in her in, in advancing those liberal causes going in. But they said, you know, we're going to we assume that was that was a one off with Justice Thomas's confirmation. I think they, the Democrats proved that was not a one off. This is the new normal, unfortunately, for Supreme Court confirmations. Uh, for a while, that was just the, the uh, people, I think, thought it might stay with the Supreme Court, but we saw with the beginning of the second President Bush's attempted at ju- judicial confirmations that the Democrats had decided we're going to make this a all or nothing game. They started filibustering nominees and the numbers of confirmations just from the first year, kind of are illustrative Clinton in his first year, confirmed 58 percent of the people he nominated. Then when you go down to George Bush, uh, he conser- confirmed half that. 26 percent of his nominees got confirmed. And that was when the the whole practice of filibustering uh, appellate nominees began. And we've hovered around there. You know, Obama had a little higher, 35, but then Trump's nomination rate was way back in the 20s. So they've pushed it back. And even without the filibuster as an option now, uh, because that was eliminated by Harry Reid a few years ago when he didn't want. Democrats having their judges filibustered. Thanks, Um, Harry. Yeah, thanks. It's worked out quite well because, you know, a lot of these judges wouldn't have gotten confirmed. And that's when we're seeing them weaponizing other things like the blue slip or Mm -hmm. like the cloture – 30 hour debate.
1: So I've been really disappointed at the left's brazen hostility towards Trump's female nominees. You know, the left claims all they want is more, you know, women judges, more female nominees. Yet They try to paint these incredibly accomplished women as unfit for judicial office. And the criticisms range from personal to professional. So we'll all remember when Senator Feinstein declared the dogma lives loudly within you to Amy Barrett, suggesting that because she was a practicing Catholic, she couldn't be a fair judge. And the Alliance for Justice, who apparently couldn't come up with with anything on Alison (laughs) Ide, wrote with great disdain in a report that Ide has firmly established herself as the most outspoken critic of eminent domain (laughs) on the Colorado Supreme Court, which I thought was hilarious. Um, so what do you make of these attempts to go after these
2: conservative women? Uh, yeah, well, I think applying eminent domain rules is probably a yawner. Most, that's not, not going to get you a lot of votes. But I think it, you're, you're right. They're doing it across the board to the nominees, but I think most viciously to the women. And that's because having a cons- accomplished conservative women strikes particularly at their uh, identity politics lines. I mean, you, we saw this during the last election, the the supposition that all women just had a duty of loyalty to vote for Hillary Clinton because they were women. And so women must follow our party line. It's very condescending. And it's and I think the, the, the fact that these women are particularly well-suited to explain and articulate their reasons and the reasons that they hold a different philosophy uh, is very threatening. And so that's why you see them coming right out of the gate and, and attacking those women most harshly.
0: So there's a new group of nominees that came out, I think, last week. What can you tell us about them? Um, do you have any fun facts in particular about the Court of Appeals noms uh, for the Sixth Circuit, John Nelbandian, and the Tenth Circuit, Joel
2: Carson? I, I don't have a, it, it, my fun facts ready for them, <laughs> but I, I publish at a, a Bench Memos blog, a national review, um, a update on every upcoming appellate nominee. So we're going to have Updates on them uh, just for, to give everyone an outline uh, shortly. But we've been I think these are just following in the footsteps of the exceptional uh, appellate nominees, because it's it's been wonderful to see th- this White House focusing on finding judicial nominees who have the kind of qualifications as well as the courage to uh, put those out there.
0: So when your bench memos post is up, we'll be sure to tweet that from the SCOTUS 101 uh, Twitter account, which everyone should follow if you aren't already.
1: <laughs> so Slate's Mark Joseph Stern wrote about JCN, your organization's involvement in the public campaign to support Neil Gorsuch's confirmation. And he called you Gorsuch's dark money benefactor. I like dark money queen a lot better. <laughs> I we should go with that. But how do you respond um, to claims like these? And can you tell us about how JCN is involved in the confirmation battles
2: uh, yeah we we saw some of this same same stuff come up during gorsuch's confirmation hearings and senator whitehouse in particular was very outspoken it's uh, dark money is really just a slur used for 501c4 groups which are not required by law to disclose their donors and what we we've, we've seen with the kind of attacks uh, that have happened on many groups uh, on the right the reason that that some donors might want to remain anonymous because they they're going to be targeted you know whether it's means firing or, or protesters on your lawn there is a first amendment right to have that your uh, your Speech not be uh, harassed in that way. I, the the thing that's so ironic is you see people you know like like the Senator Whitehouse or the same people who are criticizing these who are have no problem with working with groups like People for the American Way or Planned Parenthood <laughs> Action. Also C force. So there's there's nothing uh, you know nefarious about having a particular tax designation. I think they're just using it as a slur against conservative groups who have that tax de- designation. It's it's a silly uh, process and really it's trying to bully uh, groups out of the the public. Public sphere and public debate.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, what's your fa- favorite memory of clerking for him?
2: Wow, there are so many. I mean, he's he's an amazing, amazing person to uh, have gotten to know and to to count as a mentor. I just thought it was always so impressive contrasting him with some of the other justices you would who maybe felt. Their uh, their authority and their their status a little more. You'd walk through the off uh, the halls and the marshals might oh get out of the way get out of the way here comes Justice so and so. Whereas Justice Thomas will walk through the hallways and he knows all the marshals by name. And he'd be like hey your team just lost last weekend I can't believe that that was a cr- crushing defeat. Or he gets in the elevator and there's there's elevator operators in the Supreme Court to for security to make sure you don't get off on the wrong floor. And he would say, oh, I heard your mom was in the hospital. How's she doing? I mean, he knows everyone in there by name. He uh, is such a genuine Person, you know, he 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 came from humble beginnings, but he uh, he's still so humble despite being one of the most powerful men in the country. And mm-hmm. we would constantly have people coming into the office that he maybe you know it was a waitress in a restaurant who had was struggling and trying uh, trying to figure out where to if if she could get into college or how to get a scholarship or how to get through school. And he he said, "Come by my office and I'll give you some advice." And they would call and be like. Um, this ju- this person who said he was Justice Thomas claimed that I could really come in and and, 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 and his secretary's like oh yeah that that sounds totally you know but like him because he would do that regularly with with just real Americans he loved being able to help and help and particularly mentor people who like him have come up from difficult uh, backgrounds.
1: That's wonderful. Um, and finally, the question we ask every guest on SCOTUS 101, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: Whew. I think I would probably go with, well, it would be really interesting to talk to Justice John Marshall just because there, he some of his opinions are so uh, foundational. You know, you think of Marbury versus Madison and see if he really would have predicted today that the the Supreme Courts, even just their their power of interpreting the Constitution was what he expected uh, when he wrote those words. Maybe it is, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'd I'd be curious to know.
0: So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Clarence Thomas edition, Mm -hmm. where we're going to try to stump our guest, Carrie Severino. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) So uh, many of these questions came from other former law clerks. So we'll tell you who to blame if you get any wrong after the show is over. (laughs) Uh, So first question. What language did Justice Thomas speak growing up in coastal Georgia? Geechee. That is correct. The Gullah Geechee is a Creole language drawing from English and West
1: African.
2: Mm-hmm. That's the I, I studied linguistics, so that was particularly interesting
1: to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next question: What variation of horse, the basketball game, does justice? Does the justice play on the highest court in the land?
2: Ooh, I don't think he's been playing since he broke his. He tore his ACL up there, so he never played with us. I'd, I'd be <laughs> curious to know that one. Well, we're told it's habeas corpus. Oh,
0: and I guess this is from his earlier years yes. uh, at the
2: court. That gives you longer to to kind of get out which is about what i do when i play <laughs> like five letters you get a lot more
0: who does justice thomas have a bust of in his office
2: he's got a lot of them but the, i think the biggest one is his uh, grandfather Myers anderson that's correct um, yeah but old man can't is dead i yeah <laughs> i killed him i think is what's written on it
1: next can you name the thomas clerks who have been nominated to appeals court judgeships by president trump
2: Ooh, and we'll give you a hint all four have been confirmed as of this week. Right. So the, the, the number is, is good because then I make sure I don't forget <laughs> anyone. Alice and I, we just mentioned David Strauss, who just got confirmed uh, and Greg Katzis. And oh, no. Now, if I forget someone, I'm going to feel really guilty. Oh, um, Jim Ho. Yes, that's, so that's correct. So there Very we go. good. And we still have a few a few people waiting in the wings. I mean, Greg Maggs is still waiting. There's a lot of people waiting. But
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, who is the Justice's favorite singer? I can give you a genre if that helps. Ah, shoot. We did eight. We did eight.
2: Georgia-themed happy hour, and there was a Georgia kind of blues singer that he liked, and I can't remember who it was. I wonder if that was it.
0: <laughs> um, according to our sources, it's George Jones, who was a legendary country music mm-hmm. singer. Yes. Tiffany is more familiar with this area. Elizabeth doesn't know. I know who he is. He was married to Tammy Wynette. I know that.
1: that. I, I saw him in concert when I was eight years old. I'm a country music junkie. Oh, wow. And my favorite song by him is White Lightning. It's a song about moonshine.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, Carrie, I think you did a great job and thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening.
1: Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany
2: Bates, sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.